Hello and welcome. Is your business your mission and your mission your business? If yes, you found your tribe. Whether you feel like it or not, you are avant-garde, going your own way, making your own path, doing it like no one has done before. And the answers to the challenges you're facing aren't in a book. My friend, you are not alone. This is the Avant-Garde Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Bailey, a mission-minded serial entrepreneur and traveler. My purpose on this earth is to use my authenticity and passion to equip and empower social entrepreneurs to live in their highest calling, feeling freedom, fulfillment, and security, and inspiring others to do the same. Join me for stories, tips, and tricks for taking avant-garde inspired action in your business so that you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. I believe it doesn't have to be hard to be right. Hello, and thank you for being here for the second episode of Avant-Garde Entrepreneur. In this episode, I'm going to talk about my least favorite topic, me. (laughs) It's not that I don't like myself, but I would much rather talk about you. But I know that if any of what I'm going to share about in future episodes is going to make sense, it's really important for you to have a little bit of context about my life and experience. So I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here, at least I don't think I am. I'll save that for specific topics as my spirit leads me. This will just be a little more detail than the first episode. First, a quick housekeeping note. In the first episode, I said that I was going to release episodes weekly. I fell into the trap of should, S-H-O-U-L-D. They say that you should release weekly because it maximizes the number of people that the algorithm gets to, but I didn't create this podcast for everybody. I created it for you and busy social entrepreneurs who might want to listen to something weekly. They often have a life that kind of gets in the way. And I know from personal experience, I don't allocate the time I'd like to, to listen to my favorite podcast weekly. So I'm going to release them every other week instead. And so this way, you'll have two weeks to listen to it and not feel like you're behind. And I'm using air quotes with the word behind because I sure feel behind a lot. (laughs) I don't know about you. The reality is that I'm probably right on time, but there's certainly a calendar full of tasks and a project to-do list a mile long that tells me otherwise. At least I feel that it tells me otherwise. And this feeling of being behind or feeling behind is the perfect segue into one of the highlights of my story or feeling like I need to make up for lost time. So I'm from Dover, Florida. It is a small farming community between Tampa and Orlando, and it's where all the strawberries come from in the wintertime. And I grew up in a home with lots of love. My parents had me when they were 20 and 21, so I say I grew up with my parents because they were so young, they were still becoming who they were going to be when they had me. I had eight grandparents because they were all divorced and remarried, and I was the first grandchild. So I was raised with a strong work ethic and a strong education ethic as well. My dad had a tractor business when we were growing up, so my sister Jill and I worked with him, and 
Also in the summertime in the mornings, Jill and I picked jalapeno peppers for the farmer who owned the fields next to our house. And my mom was basically going to school, uh, to nursing school the entire way through my primary or elementary school and high school. And she graduated with her master's degree the same year I graduated from high school. And I tell you, I can still see that dark blue chemistry book from one of her bachelor's courses sitting on our rectangular wooden dining room table. It was very thick. And unfortunately, chemistry did not rub off on me at all. (laughs) But education and work seem to be in my DNA. However, my parents never put pressure on us for either. Of course, if we didn't want to work, that was just too bad. We were going to have to do that anyway. But there was never a lot of pressure and about life in general. And in fact, I never got perfect attendance in school because my mom insisted that we take mental health days once or twice a school year. And though I always felt a lot of love in my family, I never really felt like I fit in school. I was never popular and I always felt like an outsider. I was often the kid that sat by herself at lunch or with a few other kids who were like me as well, who didn't have a lot of friends. And we just, if we were sitting at a table together, there wasn't a lot of talking because none of us really knew what to say. (laughs) But one of the pivotal points in my life was when my seventh grade biology teacher, Mr. Altizer, asked me to join the ornamental horticulture team and our FFAs our school's FFA chapter. FFA stands for Future Farmers of America. And this contest involved learning to identify 500 plants and 500 insects and judging the quality of plants. I literally threw myself into this and our team ended up being the youngest ever to compete in the national competition. We were ninth graders and we were competing against seniors in high school. And we placed uh, 17th, I think, but we might as well have placed first because that's how, that's how good it felt. And that's how Mr. Altizer was so proud of us and, and just poured into us. In eighth grade, I got my first leadership position, not because I was elected by my peers. In fact, I lost the election in five different Position starting at president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, sentinel, all the way down. Mr. Altizer actually appointed me to a position. He gave me the chance that I needed. He saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, nor did my classmates. And, or if they did, they sure didn't show it. (laughs) But that was really all I needed just a chance, just someone outside from my parents who believed in me. After that being appointed to in my first office, there was a long run of wins. And I still didn't feel popular, but I knew who I was and I didn't need the validation of other people. And it's amazing what happens when you're not worried about what other people think. When you've been in the shadows for so long and your success is just completely under the radar. And to this day, I much prefer to fly under the radar than to be to be in the lights or have a lot of attention to myself. And it's also of note, I think, that I knew that I had to work harder than other people. So my sister was and still is a genius 
just a genius. She was always in gifted program, the gifted program. And I was an A student with a B here and there, but I had to work for every bit of it. And Jill just seemed to get it osmotically. It's, it's amazing. It's still amazing to me. And there were also several other geniuses in my class of 900. So I always knew I wasn't the smartest, but what I did know is that I had the focus and dedication to stick with it. And while dedication and focus are virtues, I kind of took them to the extreme and developed an unhealthy performance orientation. And when I say performance orientation, I mean I judged myself on my performance. So if I worked hard, then that meant that I performed well and I was good. If I didn't work hard, I was bad. And I doubt that I ever really even allowed myself not to work hard. But once I got my wings, once I had that that victory, then I felt like I had to make up for lost time. And that's probably the source of my always or in the past always feeling behind. So at 16, I set my first goals. And I can still remember sitting in my bedroom, which was affectionately called the meat locker in our house, because it was on the corner of our home and it was rather drafty. And I had pink walls and a day bed with white. It was a white day bed with an iron frame. And sitting on my bed, I had a piece of notebook paper and a pen. And across the top of the page, I wrote these words. If I could do anything, I would dot, dot, dot. By the time I finished, I had filled all 26 lines of the front side of the paper and half of the back side. Some of the things included catching an eight-pound bass and shooting an eight-point deer. And then there were some more audacious goals for a mousy-feeling girl from a small town like skydiving, surfing, and shark diving. And little did I know, as I wrote that night, that asking myself if and having permission to dream would set the trajectory of my entire life. And I still not shot an eight-point deer, or any deer for that matter, but by the time I was 27, I'd done just about everything on that goal list or vision list. So after the start that Mr. Altizer gave me, I basically took the FFA train to the end of the line. I was elected as a state officer at 18, then as a national officer at 20. And there were, just to kind of give you a perspective, there were half a million members in the National FFA organization at the time, and six were selected to represent the organization that year, and I was one of the six. So that year, I was gone for 328 days out of 365, in and out of a time zone or two a day, never knowing who was going to pick me up or if I was going to get picked up, speaking to groups from five to 50,000. It was just, I never knew what was going to happen. And I got very comfortable just going with it and having high expectations for myself, but just being okay with whatever happened and making the best of it. I went back to college after my national officer year ended. I went back to college and I still continued to travel on weekends doing speaking events and conducting leadership workshops. And it was a tough transition for me from the perfection expected of us as national officers to the mediocrity of college life where people kind of lived 
at my college, it kind of felt, or maybe it was just the people I was with, I'm not sure, but it felt like people just kind of lived from party to party wearing sweatpants in between. And that was, that was a tough transition for me. But because I had gotten so comfortable with travel as a national FFA officer and was paying for my own university education, I took breaks in between degrees to travel. And so what I do is I live like a miser <laughs> when I was in school and then when I save up all my money and then when I go overseas, I just come alive. So travel was really my escape. I was accepted into a position at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, South Korea, with the Foreign Agriculture Service, which was really amazing. It was the Foreign Agriculture Service is the liaison between U.S. exporters of agricultural products like beef, teas, that kind of thing, all kinds of products, and basically any food product that's made in the United States. So they're the liaison between U.S. exporters and Korean importers of these food and agricultural products. I lived in the historic district in Seoul and would wake up to the sound of the temple bells and drums every day. And I walked through them to get to my office. And there was a travel agency at the embassy. So it was really easy to get plane tickets and travel to different countries in Asia because of my association with the embassy. I could speak English. I didn't have to try to navigate things in, in different languages. And then back at home, one day I got really frustrated in a physics class. I left class and I wound up at the travel agency at school. And it is amazing how cheap you can travel as a student. I picked up a brochure on Fiji. And at that point, I just wanted to be as far away from everyone as I could. And then I also realized, wow, I can do a lot of things that are on my goal list that would totally freak my parents out if they knew that I was doing them. <laughs> so I bought a backpack and an open-ended plane ticket, and I backpacked through the South Pacific for three months. And I reached my final destination, which was Bora Bora, where I'd heard that that was the farthest place from anywhere. Now I know it's not, but that's what I believed at the time. So that was my objective was to get to Bora Bora. I had parasailed in Fiji, skydived in New Zealand, learned to surf in Australia, bought my own surfboard in Byron Bay, and I even surfed in Tahiti. And now in Bora Bora, I'd scuba dive twice, including a shark dive. And I was still, deep down in my soul, miserable. So anyway, I was sitting there one evening on a, kind of on a wooden deck protected from this blustery, balmy wind that was coming through Bora Bora with sprinkles of rain. And I realized that the common denominator to my misery was me. So all this time I had been running, but I wasn't running from circumstances or events like I thought I was. I was actually running from myself and running from how I processed those things and how I responded to those things. So no more running. It was time to go home. And I did. And I would like to say that when I got home, it got better, but it actually got worse. There were lots of events that happened that I won't get into here. And I responded the best I knew how at the time, I guess, in my mid to late 20s, mid 20s, I think I was most of that. But the combination of the events and my responses led to some really unsavory outcomes. And 
There's a formula that I've learned. It's E plus R equals O. E equals the event. R equals the response to the event. And O equals the outcome. So we can't necessarily control the E's, the events in our lives, but we can control are the R's or the, our responses to the events. And our response to the event leads to the outcome. So I didn't realize at the time, but now I know that this means that I get to take 100% responsibility for my life because I get to control my response. Now, I will say that I was the happiest 30-year-old you ever saw. I was amazed that I had made it to 30 alive with all the mistakes and less than ideal decisions that I had made and less than ideal responses. And by the time I turned 30, I had moved to Jacksonville Beach where I live now. It's in the northeast part of Florida, just below Georgia. And I could still make more money at that time as a bartender, which I'd done in school. That's how I put myself through school. Then I could with an MBA with an emphasis in international trade, even though Jacksonville is a port city. So I did, after 12 years, finally cut the cord of bartending, which is a story for another episode. And I took a job with a real estate developer. And that turned out to be a not good situation that the federal authorities shut down, which makes that probably not a good podcast episode, (laughs) but more of an in-person story. But thankfully, I wasn't implicated. And what was good about that is that I met someone who would become my business partner. So I joined him in a financial services business. And thankfully, that has just grown exponentially. And we designed it so that I could still get to travel and do the things that I really love. And so even though that is my priority, as far as business goes, I'm not chained to it. I do make a lot of sacrifices, but I also have freedom that I enjoy as well. So I also learned in my 30s about traveling for a purpose. And the first humanitarian trip I took was to China in 2007. And it was a shock to travel with a group of people instead of traveling by myself. But since then, I've been to China more times than I can count and to countless other countries. And then I started leading trips and then conducting exploratory trips on my own or as part of a pair. And that's where I discovered social entrepreneurs. I discovered these wonderful people working in tiny pockets of the planet teaching people the skills they need to take care of themselves and their families. People who give other people a chance, just like Mr. Altizer gave me. And because I'd been in so many sketchy situations abroad, I learned, uh, started learning to take care of myself physically. That led to a lot of tactical training, that led to becoming an executive protection specialist. And In a life or death situation, I'd say that 90% of what keeps a person alive is his or her mindset. It's their will to live and their assuredness that they can and will defeat their opponent or their aggressor. And what brings me here to this point now is that in the past few years, I've gotten really good at minding my mindset. 
and taking care of myself mentally and spiritually. And that has impacted my personal and my business life. And I want to be your guide to help you take care of yourself mentally and spiritually and your life and your social business as well. And as I said in the first episode, success in business has very little to do with business techniques. It's really all about the other stuff. And I am certain that even though my experiences haven't all been the happiest or the healthiest, they can all be used for good if I let them. And yours can too. Now, my stories and experiences and life and business lessons, they won't resonate with everyone. I'm sure of that. I'm diplomatic, but I don't really sugarcoat much. But if you are a social enterprise or business's mission leader, if you're an aspiring business owner or someone who always gets asked to take leadership positions, if you're someone who holds yourself to ridiculously high standards that still feel mediocre to you, if you feel overwhelmed or if you're just on the edge or even over the edge of burnout, or if you've turned your emotions off because feeling is too painful, or if you know without a doubt you can do it, whatever it is, you are in the right place because I have been in all those places myself. You are among friends. So I'm cutting it close to the time for this short podcast that I intend for you. So In the next episode, I will share more about the last few years and my forever vocation, which involves elevating and advocating for social entrepreneurs as part of the solution to sustainable economic development. But until then, I encourage you to think about the formula E plus R equals O. Event plus response equals outcome. So it's not just about the events. It's really about our response to the events that determines our outcome. So think about this for a minute. What's one response you've had to an event that led to a not so great outcome? Now, when you get that in your mind, take a deep breath. And as you exhale, let it go. Release it. And in your mind, rewrite your response in that situation, your response to that event. This is not about regret. This is about starting to rewire your brain. Now, think about one response you've had to an event that's made for a great outcome. Are you starting to grin or maybe even smile? Hopefully so, relish it because that's what's in you. That's who you are. That is your spirit at work. And that feeling is what we'll discover more of together. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I look forward to seeing you here for the next episode of Avant Garde Entrepreneur. Thanks for listening to this episode of Avant Garde Entrepreneur. I hope you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it here on your podcast player. Questions, comments, or feedback? Connect with me directly at trishabaileyphd.com or on social at trishabaileyphd. Now, you go and get back to making the world a better place. I'll see you back here soon.